Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, and I'm joined as always by Billy Belenko. And we have a lot on our plate today because we have several collections that are live on The Vent platform. We still have our Germany collection, as well as our White Burgundy collection live on the platform. And by the time our listeners tune into this episode, we will have also launched our The Joy Fantastic and Primor Futures Collection, as well as announced our Macallan 50-Year Whiskey Offering. So we have a lot on our plate today, and we'll discuss some of that. But we also want to spend some time recapping some travels that Billy and I have been on recently, Billy in Europe, and then both of us out in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon. So we'll dive into that. And then on the tail end of this episode, we will share with you the interview that we did on Instagram Live with Amy Christine and her husband, Peter Hunkin of the Joy Fantastic. Those are the producers of the Joy Fantastic and Premier collection that we have just launched um, that we'll be offering by the time this episode comes out. And it was a great conversation with them. And we're excited to share that with you here on the podcast as well. So Billy, do we want to dive in and just talk about some of those travels? Maybe you can start and tell us about what you were up to both at the Bordeaux and Premier Week as well as some time you spent in London as well. Yeah, I think we had originally touched on a little bit from London, but yeah, over the past six weeks or so, I've been traveling. Uh, this is my first full week back in, in Los Angeles. I've been traveling most of them. Started out with our trip to London, which was great. I, we've touched on it a little bit on this podcast, but we got to meet a bunch of our merchant partners, go visit our rural and secure warehouse where we're storing most of our wine. We got to go see our other wine storage. So that, that was really an exciting trip. And part of the reason that we went on that trip at that time was because we were originally going to go on it later in April, but that turned out to be Bordeaux on Premier Week, where you know journalists and merchants and basically people in the industry get to come and taste the last fall's vintage. So that was really excited. I had already some plans to go over to Germany for a short little personal holiday. So I basically did my Germany holiday where I actually got to stop in, in the Mosul Valley and taste some great Riesling. Um, everybody go check out our Riesling collection because they're amazing. I didn't get to go by that exact vineyard, but Mosul Rieslings are some of my favorite wines in the world. They're so complex and they can age forever, but their acid and their their depth are, are just amazing. So I made sure my buddies that I was on the holiday with, we stopped by there. It was actually my first time visiting. So that was exciting, but it was kind of more just kind of an appetizer up to the the big meal of the trip, which was really going to Bordeaux for the um, premier tasting. It was a whirlwind week for sure. Basically, it was my first EP week. So I went, spent a lot of time with our advisor, Miles Davis, who is, works at Wine Owners in the UK. He basically has been going to um, Premier Week for, I think, decades at this point. He's very connected with many people in the UK wine trade. So we were able to not only do some of the negotiant tastings and some of the general regional tastings that... I could set up kind of on my own, but we also got some behind the scenes chateau tastings thanks to his connections in the industry. So yeah, no, it was it was a whirlwind experience. What what would you like me to kind of touch on there as much? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I was kind of interested because we haven't even talked yeah. offline about which producers, which were kind of the standout producers that you were able to taste. Were there a lot of blue chip kind of collectible producers? Is, is that part of the Premier Week or is it more like you know, like village level sort of wines? Yeah, great, great question. So I think the the top most famous producer type things I got to taste were from either like the, the Moex group, which owns Petrus. We didn't get to try Petrus, but we got to try everything else kind of in their book. So I'm trying to think of some names without Le Fleur Petrus. I think Truplong's in that mix. And then we got to go to Canon, which was was really exciting. We got to taste actually there in the Chateau, whereas the... Uh, the Moex tasting was in Pomerol, but in the city kind of proper in this like special, you know, kind of room or area that they had. And then um, we also got to go to a place called Le Dome. And I can't remember if it's on the border. Of, and now this is bothering me. It's on the border of Saint Emilion and Pomerol. It's in Saint Emilion. I know that for sure. Um, but that was really cool because it's basically somebody who came and kind of came along this around the same time as the Garagista movement. And it was kind of this up and coming chateau. And now he's built this brand new winery that looks kind of like a spaceship, kind of like a dome. 
you know, after its namesake. And it, it's really been taking off along with a couple of their second wines. So those were the main blue chips. But when you go to the the other tastings, so say the Negociants or some of the regional tastings, they, there are a lot of crew class A wines, some of the top tier, but it does definitely goes down to the village level too. And you're basically really tasting, not just for quality, but basically trying to get a sense of the vintage. So every different commune you go to, you're going to see a difference in the acid structure, the tannin structure, the ripeness of the fruit. And this all varies based on just kind of the, the subclimates within the region. So rain, rain might've fallen heavier in one place. Frost might've affected another region more. And while this doesn't necessarily always affect the quality of the, the final blends, it might affect like, say the, the mix of the final blends. So there was a lot of frost this year that damaged a bunch of the Merlot. So a few wines that are maybe, you know, heavily Merlot or, 30, 40% Merlot and some Cab, they might've been more to like 75, 80, 90% Cabernet than this year. So that, that was kind of interesting just to get a sense of how the weather and the, the vintage affected each region and what kind of macro commune was expressing itself well. That's that's really interesting. The, I kind of had not very much idea about how the Unpremore week worked before you went over there and you kind of described it to me. Can you stay, take a step back and talk to our listeners about that and just describe exactly what the purpose is of that week. Yeah, for sure. And for, for everybody to read a little bit more about our perspective on some of the regions and high level on the trip, we also have a, a blog post up that I wrote last week. So check that out. But yeah, so what happens and we're in the, the real thick of it now is each year there's a vintage in Bordeaux. So it's, it's, we're on 2021 on Premier. And then each year around May, late late April, but normally in May and sometimes trickling into June, each chateau will release their wines for sale from the year before. So they'll set a price, there'll be an initial release price, and then multiple tranches after that, where people can basically buy shares, not necessarily shares, but invest in wines, and you're, you're kind of buying by the bottle. You get to dictate at the end of basically what you what format you want your bottle in but you'll you buy by the bottle and you basically buy wines that are going to be released in the next two years so you're buying 2021 wine now that'll be in barrel for another 18 months and bottled and then kept at the chateau until they're released so the point of this part of the process is for everybody in the the journalists uh, and the critics to go and taste and rate and review the wines for the merchants to kind of go see and use their own palates to kind of get a sense of what the vintage is like and what they may want to purchase for their consumers. And for people like us, it's what we think, you know, to get a sense of the vintage in terms of quality, ageability, potential investability in the future, collectability. So it's really just to get a sense of the vintage and then see and hear from the other merchants and critics what what they're perceiving as well. And that all helps us go into craft, not only future collections where we might be, you know, why collections in the future where we might be investing in these wines when they're in bottle, but also being able to offer entrepreneur collections to our investors. So right now the, the Vint team is in the midst of buying some of these entrepreneur offerings. So each chateau releases on a certain date. So it's kind of on a rolling basis every day, some new chateau release. And then we work with our merchant partners to try to acquire allocations of some of these wines. And we're we're in the middle of that now. And it's it's really interesting to be buying the wines that I was tasting while we were there. So it's really helpful to get a sense, especially 2021, which was kind of a weird year. I mean, there was some frost, there were some other mildew effects. So it was really important to be there and and get a sense of which region was showing well or which wines were showing well and and which ones weren't. Yeah, that's great. That's great context too. Did you get to, speaking of the critics, did you get to meet with many critics? Like what were those conversations like? I know that's kind of a corner of the wine world that touches both kind of your average wine drinker and consumer market, but also obviously the collector's market as well. Did uh, Any comments on some of those conversations? Did you hear anything interesting from critics specifically? Not really. We didn't really get to meet any of the big names. They kind of get to be sequestered away at the you know top mm-hmm. chateau and and even even the top merchants stay at chateau themselves. So you're kind of okay. you're kind of separated from them. Although I will say the the one of the coolest things we did, and there there were definitely some critics there, although I didn't get to you know have them pointed out to me by name, was we went to a a dinner. It was kind of like a stand up dinner and tasting at Chateau Yquem, which Chateau Yquem is by far the the most famous sauternes in the world, the most famous Bordeaux sweet wine, and it, it was one of 
it was the only sweet wine to be classified, you know, in, in its own category when they did the classification in 1855 in Bordeaux. So it, it's been highly sought after for years and centuries now. And Miles was able to get us both passes to this. It was a journalist only, like journalist and media only tasting and dinner, which we were able to attend. And so that was really cool. So there, there that was full of magazine writers and, and a lot of different people working for different publications. And it was basically at the Chateau. We got, we arrived right at sundown. So this, the sun was, was not quite down yet. And there was putting this like nice gold glow over the Chateau and the vines. And they greeted us with 2019, you came. Um, and we got to go in and taste. And basically it was set up by the UGCB, which is the um, Union of Grand Cru de Bordeaux. And so each sub-commune and kind of region throughout Bordeaux had its own like little table of, you know, 20 wines or 10 to 20 wines. And these were all aged expressions from different vintages. So it was kind of cool to, during the day, go taste all these baby wines and wines from 2021, and then take a step back and taste, you know, what these wines could become in 15, 20 years of age. So that that was a special night. I'm sure there, I had a, a few journalists pointed out to me, there was none of the, none of the big names, but I, I'm sure some of them were around because there, there were some, some big time players at that, at that meeting and i was just kind of happy to be there and, and tasting the wine yeah that's great we'll, they'll have you uh put up in chateau i'm sure in just a couple of years uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i will say at dinner too that it started with a 2019 and then they um they ended with a 1989 satire which is really cool number one it's you know 30 years apart but number two 1989 is my birth year so that was kind of cool i've i've kind of thought about which wines i would want to have at a different decade marker birthdays and you know being so long lived Saturn is one of those I could potentially consider for my 40th or 50 50th birthdays so it was kind of cool to get a, a, a sneak peek of what that wine kind of looked like and it was also available at unlimited pours so I definitely had a, a second glass <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> yeah. awesome yeah we you know we kind of talking a little bit about these producers who have a most of them have a storied history in Bordeaux, their particular region. And obviously Bordeaux is known around the world for producing top quality wines year after year, but kind of the other leg of our journeys over the last couple of weeks culminated with uh, us getting to meet up as a team in Oregon, me and and you and uh, Jordan, our marketing director or head of growth, I guess. Um, And so maybe we can dive into that a little bit. We got to meet with several producers out there, have some great conversations with producers and I think maybe even uh, I would kind of mark it as our kind of definitive point where we're really starting to dive into establishing long-lasting producer relationships, not just with merchant partners and and other folks in the industries, but with on-the-ground farmers and producers, where we really hope to have, I think, an outsized impact within the industry as not many wine investment firms, companies have close relationships with producers and I I kind of saw that trip that we just got back from out in Oregon as kind of the beginning of that journey. So, you know, maybe we can dive in there and talk about some of the wines that we had and maybe just pull the curtain back a bit on what's to come with those relationships. That was was great. I I will say we started kind of slowly building these personal and direct relationships over time. And and we've been buying directly from some merchants and then the guys over at Judge Palmer and that those wines that we've basically been including in our NFTs um, at Emmett Scorsone, those were kind of our very first direct wine connection. Obviously, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. went up there and visited last August and we did the NFTs. And what's kind of cool to your point is, so this Oregon trip will have been um, a couple of weeks back. Last week, I was just in Charleston. And to your point of the value of these relationships, I was in Charleston and just posted an Instagram picture on my wine Instagram of you know just wines that we are having in Charleston and then Palmer actually from Emmett Square Zone actually reached out and was like hey are you you're in Charleston and I'm in Charleston he was selling his wines kind of doing a route and we've built such a good relationship with him he was like oh we, we need to meet up you know come meet me and my broker for for dinner and he basically actually like you know paid for my my dinner so it's really cool to kind of see to your point these producer relationships not only growing but you know we we have a good working relationship with them and it's really about building that you know how can we help you? How can we help them type relationships? So now we've grown from some Sonoma producer to our Santa Barbara producer, which we're launching tomorrow. And now this Oregon trip to your point, I think was kind of the, the culmination of us trying to see it in a bunch of different ways. So speaking of 
that first relationship. Do you want to talk about like why we kind of went up there in the first place and how we built off our podcast, you know, earlier in this season? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So earlier on some of our listeners might know we had a podcast episode where we interviewed Jacob Gray and former NBA player Channing Fry uh, about the wine project that they're working on out in Oregon called Chosen Family Wines. Yeah, we had an awesome conversation with them back then, and we decided to kind of continue this relationship, this collaboration, and decided to come out and shoot some additional content with them, which uh, we'll just kind of tease it, leave it there. Uh, we'll have some of that coming out in the near future. But so shooting some content with them, continuing to build relationships, and really just listening to them and some other producers that they connected us with who are doing really great things in the Willamette Valley in Oregon with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And really finding out what the needs of the producers are, both in terms of how they see their business and trying to grow their brand reach and their membership, but also how they're thinking about their wines and how we might be able to partner with them in terms of, you know, either helping in certain ways with sourcing or building um, more robust library collections or even offering their wines on our platform in certain ways. And so these are ongoing conversations that. We've had with producers in the past, but I think we had them certainly at a higher volume out in Oregon. And it was nice to actually go to the properties, see that at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these folks are just farmers and the care that they have for the land, the time, the intensive time that goes into producing these wines. And, you know, a region in the U.S. that, you know, sadly, especially from a consumer perspective, I think is um, overshadowed by maybe Napa, Napa Valley and Sonoma, certainly Pinot Noir in Sonoma, uh, California, sometimes overshadows Oregon, but in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, they're producing certainly some of the top wines in the entire U.S., maybe even uh, in the kind of Western part of the world or in the old world. Um, some of these Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays certainly are extremely high quality. So we kind of see these producer relationships as a starting point for understanding what is really kind of a rookie card stage for some of these producers, you know, many uh, producers in the Willamette Valley, this is only like second or third generation, these farms. And so a lot of wineries are family owned, you know, family winemakers and such. And I think that there's a lot of stories there to tell about wine growing in the U.S. and how our industry is expanding, but also about kind of looking ahead and saying, hey, you know, as the climate changes and as just uh, collector and consumer demands and interests change over time. These are certainly regions to have on our map. Willamette Valley, the quality is already very high, even after just a kind of short, you know, relative short span of time producing wines in that region. The, uh, the quality is already extremely high. They're really starting to hit their stride in terms of production and volume. And uh, more people need to know about the region, quite frankly. And I think that more collectors and more investors should, should certainly have them on their radar, you know, as we think about, you know, the global wine trade. Yeah, definitely. And Next week, we're or actually it'll come out when this podcast comes out. We have a, a piece that kind of outlines our, our week in the Willamette, kind of describing um, our collective views kind of on the wine. I, I call it collective. But um, while I wrote the piece, I think I took pieces from what you and Jordan both said while we were on the trip to kind of get a, a whole picture. To your point, something I kind of want to emphasize there, and I, I think we're at a perfect spot for Oregon Pinot Noir, because you mentioned Sonoma and that style. And and that's such a big ripe style. And it's not really more about balance as it is about like robustness and rich fruit, rich flavors, even a bunch of oak. I think the wines from Oregon definitely represent an opportunity to taste Pinot Noir with more kind of balance. And there, there's definitely an acid undertone to everything that both enhances, you know, in the lighter wines, some of the, the aromas and flavors and in the bigger wines help balances out riper fruit and, and more structure which I think is what draws people to kind of parallel it to older world wines. But I, I would definitely hesitate people trying to do a direct, direct comparison to Burgundy. Like we, we've tasted and there are many producers that have vineyards in each place. But what's interesting there is they're both good wines on their own and they're both shaped by unique terroir that cannot be replicated. So I like to focus more on what are the similarities from the, the production kind of style and and it's kind of cool to your point. There's a lot more family run. It's very seems more farmer like communities in the Willamette Valley. And you'll go to these producers. I think three of the four that I went to, you went to an extra one, had vineyards, you know, 
either the the name of the winery, like Beaufrere was named after a, a family member and these two brothers-in-law who started a winery, which one of them was Robert Parker. Two other ones we went to had wines either named after wives or grandparents or, or their children. So I think that's super telling. Um, and then the, the other piece that I was going to go down the route with um, compared to Burgundy is there's a lot of focus on the soil types and single vineyards there too. So there's a lot of emphasis on this vineyard has this expression um, when Pinot Noir is planted there, this vineyard has this Chardonnay expression. So I thought those were interesting parallels and it's not just trying to say, do these wines taste the same? Of course they're not because there's different climate and there's different soil, but it's that attention to detail like you were getting at that I think is, was really, um, really shown through when we visited this time. Yeah. I mean, and you know, like you said, you can't compare necessarily like wine to wine because the style is simply different, but you can compare on just overall quality. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously you've been in, you were in France this year. I was lucky enough to go to France in March and I tasted in Burgundy and the, there is no, to, to me, the relative difference in quality was almost indiscernible. Um, it, I was really impressed at the, the height of quality across all the producers and across all of their portfolios that we were able to taste while we were there. We tasted a lot of wines and the quality was all extremely yeah, high. No, I, I certainly, yeah, I don't think that like compared to Burgundy, Burgundy, they, they certainly don't pale in comparison quality wise. Yeah. I mean, the, the wines that we had were, were very quality. And I, and I think, again, it goes up and when you're talking about quality to me, it's attention to detail, balance, all of those elements in wine. Of course, if you like a wine, it's going to be subjective, but in terms of ageability and, and structure overall, the, these wines have all the elements that you'd be looking for. But again, to our kind of ongoing theme with Oregon is its value at this point. It's, it's, it's a price point that's attainable. Even for the top wines, you're rarely getting above 150 bucks for these wines. So I, I think it's definitely something really interesting to explore. And I'm really excited about not only where their, their Pinot Noirs are going, but we can touch on now. Everybody was so excited about the Chardonnay. I think every winemaker we spoke with couldn't wait to pull out their Chardonnays and show us one and or run back in and get another one. And in each of these, we had expressions that were lean and mean in a good way with like nice body still, like a Chablis, like a good Chablis. There were some that were, you know, bigger and kind of riper that also stood up well. It's a nice acid backbone. I was, I was really impressed. I think I'm most excited about where Chardonnay is going in the Willamette Valley. Not to take anything away from their Pinot Noir, but those, those Chardonnays were, were absolutely surprising yeah, great. I mean, we're finding, like, you can find really quality examples. I'm, I'm just speaking extremely broadly here. You can find really quality examples of red wines, you know, California, uh, Oregon, uh, Washington State, everywhere on the West Coast in the U.S. You can find um, really high quality expressions. Um, but, yeah, I think the the whites and obviously the Chardonnay up there, which is predominantly, it's what they grow, that and what Pinot Gris, I guess. Um, but basically every white I've had from the region is like exactly what you said you know, complexity in terms of body and expression, but also really well balanced with acidity. And I, yeah, I was just completely blown away. I actually purchased half a case of, of Chardonnay and, and some sparkling right after we got back because I was just like so excited about, oh, wow, we have this kind of, you know, in our backyard. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So it's certainly not to take anything away from Pinot Noir um, in that area because they're doing incredible things. But yeah, the Chardonnay really did, you know, kind of caught my attention. Yeah. And for me, I, I've been going to Oregon on and off for the past few years, and I don't remember the Chardonnay really standing out. And I don't know if it was just the producers we went to, but then when we were talking to a couple of them, they were saying how, and this makes sense now, it's initially when they planted Pinot Noir, they planted Chardonnay nearby because that's just what they do in Burgundy. But they basically planted it on the areas where they didn't think the Pinot Noir would grow well. And that doesn't really bode well for other vines either. I mean, sure, Chardonnay is resilient, but it's not going to produce good fruit. So it was kind of cool to hear them talk about how they're seeking out plots. I mean, they've been doing this for a little over a decade now, seeking out plots that are made. They have the proper aspect, the proper soils, proper you know wind exposure and stuff to make good Chardonnay. And now we're starting to see the fruits of that labor. So I think you know, as more of these vines come of age and come online, we're only going to continue to see really great Chardonnay and, and more volume too coming out of Oregon. It's not going to be so hard to find. I'm excited. Yeah, for sure. We'll have a lot more content kind of around those producers specifically, like you said, the kind of weekend Willamette article that you're writing, blog post that you're writing, but also we'll have just more kind of ongoing content and we'll be able to share more about these producers specifically and the ones that we're 
that we're looking to build partnerships with. I think that we have a lot of exciting things coming down the pipeline over the next maybe three to six months with a lot of those folks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of coming at the pipeline, do we want to round out this conversation with the collections that we have? One will be launched by now and then one will be upcoming this Wednesday? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So like we said, we're recording this on Thursday of this previous week on the 19th. So we will have our Joy Fantastic collection will have launched on uh, May 20th. Uh, we It's a smaller offering. The total collection value is only 24000 So we don't expect it to last very long, but if there are still shares available, you certainly want to head over and check that out. Obviously, we'll have Amy Christine at the tail end of this episode sharing a little bit more about that in that Instagram live recording that we'll share with you guys. But additionally, on the day that this podcast launches, we will be announcing our McAllen 50-year whiskey. This is a single bottle of 50-year-old McAllen whiskey. And we're super excited about this offering. It's $115,000 of total collection value. Um, Billy, I want to let you kind of talk about how we got a hold of this bottle a little bit, but certainly want to encourage our investors to check that one out. I know folks typically get really excited when we offer whiskey on the platform. You know, we tend to keep about 20% of our offerings whiskey and spirits and uh, the other 80% wine. So it Definitely offers a great opportunity for further diversification. If you haven't added whiskey to your portfolio, this is a great one, especially given that it is uh, pretty old in in in, in terms of uh, you know in the world of whiskey. Fifty years is no small feat. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, to get this old, you know, it has to be a special cask. You know, to be bottled and considered whiskey, it can't go below forty percent. So most casks, even when they're they're aging, they're bottled because they're starting to dip below the certain alcohol threshold. So number one, it's always, you know, astounding to have a bottle or a barrel that's lasted, you know, really over 30 years is, is always really impressive, um, much less 50. So that was really interesting. Um, what's interesting about this is, you know, McAllen has a, a fine and rare series and they have some of these old bottlings, but not everyone has the same amount of bottles. So this one, there's only 200 bottles of this made at any one point or at any time from a single cast. And of those, 35 were allocated to the U.S. market, and the rest were divided between the European and Pacific markets, or Asian Pacific markets. So what's, what's interesting there is we were able to work with some of our sources over in the U.K. to acquire a bottle at, at relatively good pricing. And the pricing's high is just because it's, you know, you know, just really limited quantity, limited quality, and it has the McAllen name. You know, McAllen has long been basically the benchmark, the go-to name for collectible scotch in the world. And it maintains that status. And it, I, I think it kind of does so because it has everything from, I mean, even nowadays, the Macallan 18 is you know, really hard to acquire, but it has as wine or whiskeys that you can drink. And then it has everything that, you know, all the way up to the super ultra rare, super collectible whiskeys. So it's a really exciting opportunity. It's an exciting opportunity to own something that's typically out of the realm, unless you have like a million dollar plus wine and spirits platform or, you know, portfolio that you want to allocate 10% to one bottle of whiskey for. So it's, it's a cool opportunity to be able to get a piece of something that's pretty rare and pretty historical. Yeah. Now, you know, our, this is our two, thirty-six, thirty-eight, 44th bottle of whiskey. I should have done that math beforehand, but uh, yeah, investors who have been around um, since the early days event, we'll have um, pretty broad exposure now um, into whiskey, which is exciting. You know, I know this is only one bottle. And so typically with our wine collections, we see multiple producers and multiple different labels or vintages maybe. Um, so, you know, investors who are wary of the kind of one bottle investment invite people to kind of remember that when we're thinking about whiskey, we're often thinking uh, more about collectability and rarity then maybe we even think about with wine, right? So a lot of the value in, in these whiskeys, like Billy said, comes from uh, the rarity, the difficulty to get your hands on one of these bottles. I mean, 35 bottles allocated to the U.S. markets is uh, <laughs> ridiculously, astoundingly low. If you could just have 35 bottles allocated to one city, and that would be <laughs> you know, an incredibly small amount uh, for, for that population. So the fact that it's only 35 bottles allocated to the U S and we were able to get our hands on one of these, I think that really, uh, bodes well for our investors in terms of looking ahead to a point where we might be able to offload that bottle demand certainly isn't fading for collectible whiskey. 
globally. If anything, it's only growing at a more rapid pace. So we feel excited to be kind of on the ground floor of this and uh, certainly invite people to uh, take a look at their portfolios and, and consider the percentage allocation that they have to wine versus whiskey and, and certainly reach out if you'd like to discuss strategy around how you make those uh, differentiations. Yeah, and building on that, we, we had our very first whiskey collection ever. It was McAllen last year. And I, right. I think yeah, the fine and rare collection, two bottles. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, I, I know for a fact that a ton of people have joined the community since then. So if you're you're trying to build a, a well-rounded portfolio, you certainly want to have some McAllen in there somewhere. You know, it's like your, your blue chips, like having your Bordeaux or your right, Burgundy. Right. So for everybody who wasn't able to get in on that, I think this is a perfect opportunity to get a slice and kind of help round that out a little bit more because Japanese whiskey is great and it's kind of the newer kit on the block and it's still doing doing well. And the Glenn Farkless was a great collection as well. But, you know, that that name, McAllen, is the name in, in whiskey for many people. So I think it's a, a great addition to help kind of round out whatever shares you may or may not have. Awesome. Yeah. So when, when this collection goes live, it will go live on Wednesday of next week. Sorry. So two days from the launch of this podcast. Uh, the 25th. 25th. Yeah. Sorry. I was, <laughs> I was just in my head as I was just speaking, speaking, I'm trying to come up with the date. Um, that's great. Yeah. So May 25th, the collection will go live. That's noon Eastern time. Um, certainly reach out if you guys have any questions, but yeah, Billy, thanks for sharing about your, your trips, your time in France. And yeah, we'll look forward to sharing with our investors and users over the coming weeks, more about that content that we put together in Oregon and likely have many of those folks on podcasts. So Stay tuned for some of that content and enjoy the Instagram live recording that we will tag on here in just a bit with Amy Christine and her husband, Peter from Joy Fantastic, the Joy Fantastic. They have a lot of great things to say about their project and they're excited to be working with us on this Emperor, this futures offering. So enjoy. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Hello. Hey. How are you? Good. Nice to have you guys. Thanks for joining. Yeah, we're very close together right now <laughs> oh i backed up to help <laughs> no, that works we can see both of you guys there we go how about that cool awesome well thanks so much for joining here we'll uh, we'll wait a little while to try to get a let a few more people join before we hop in but um yeah how is uh how's everything going up at the winery in the tasting room this week it's been good we had some friends in town over the weekend and Monday and Tuesday, so we kind of... There was t- too much revelry. Yeah. <laughs> too much. We lined up all the bottles that we drank while we were here, and I was like, we need to rest our livers for a while. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, well, people will trickle on as we join. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have special guests, Amy and Peter from, um, you guys can see Hollis Ballas, but also the Joy Fantastic. Um, we're excited because we're launching our first producer futures event on Premiere Collection tomorrow going to go live 9 p.m pacific time 12 p.m eastern time and we're here to talk today a little bit about the wines so um first off i was gonna do this more towards the end but let's talk about the names a little bit if you guys don't mind can you tell us a little bit more about hollis bolus and how you came up with the joy fantastic um, yeah so hollis bolus it's a latin phrase that means like all at once or all in at once and you know when you're making wine you kind of got to go in with both feet so we we really like the sound of that and between amy and i there's now four arms and four legs uh in the winery so that's a octopus is a fitting logo for us yeah we're also like this all the time and then the joy fantastic i'm a i'm a diehard prince fan and so it's a prince reference the year that prince died was 2016 and that was the year our vineyard came into production and so i somehow convinced my husband who's not a prince fan who's a grateful dead fan to you're becoming more of a prince fan for sure yeah to name the vineyard uh, yeah it's sort of an homage to prince but also it's how we feel when we're out there it feels kind of joyful and fantastic to be out in the vineyard peter and i try to do a lot of the work out there our, as, as much as we can it's getting increasingly difficult as we get busier but yeah yeah and to kind of explain the two brands a little bit like holus bolus mm-hmm. our wines we make from grapes we purchase from other growers that we work with and then the Joy Fantastic is our own estate vineyard. And so we really wanted them to be separate, sort of, you know, separate identities and separate brands. And, and that's that's why they are separate brands. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Well, what brings us here today from the, the Vint side of things is we're always trying to come up with new offerings um, for our investors, new unique opportunities kind of involved in the wine space. But something that we've kind of always harped on is our interest in helping out producers or working with producers to solve industry 
issues throughout the wine industry. So it's not only access to investment grade wines, but these features are also part of our effort to really engage with producers and solve some long-term problems that the industry has had. So can you guys touch on a little bit about how cash flow typically goes from like a harvest all the way through like bottling and actually selling of wine? Because there's a long period of time of no money in between. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, most of our expenses during the year occur in, in basically the fourth quarter of the year. So, you know, you're buying grapes come October, November, you may get invoices for twenty, thirty thousand dollars per vineyard, and those are all due basically net thirty. And so all of a sudden you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars every fall. And so you have to sort of be saving up cash during the year, knowing that's coming. You know, you want to pay your growers right away. And so that's that's always one challenge. Then during the winemaking process, you know, most wineries are aging wine for at least 12 to 18 months. And so you're you're carrying all that inventory, you, you know, you pay for the grapes, you make the wine, and then it sits in barrel for a year, a year and a half, and just, you know, just sits there. It's not making you any money. Uh, so you've got to be able to financially carry essentially two vintages and then, you know, paying for bottling. Bottling's a huge expense. Um, yeah, many thousands of dollars to bottle. And so we get our huge bills in the fall, like in August when we do a big bottling, usually in November, right after harvest, and then also in um, February or March when we do our like the bottling for the red wines generally happens then. But I think that the main issue is like when we put a wine in barrel, all of it, you know, uh, between the aging process and then when we sell out of the wine, that could be three years, right? So there's like a massive, it just, it just takes forever to get your return on investment. It's really hard. I think particularly now to start a winery, Peter and I are 17 years into it now. So we're in that flow of where we're kind of, we have cash and we're sort of saving, but the vents, if you want me to talk more about our interest in the vents futures. Yeah. I mean, it's twofold. It's um, one of the things that we loved about vents is that you guys didn't Nicholas and nickel and dime us to death with pricing, which happens all the time. Um, Vince is taking 50 cases of 2021 joy, fantastic Syrah that's still sleeping in barrel right now. And we're doing a future sale of not the wine, but shares in the wine, which I know, I don't know if that confuses people or not. And you might be able to speak more on that. This for us is really great because we get cash now far in advance of when that wine is going to be bottled or released. And to get that on 50 cases helps us with our costs up front. The other thing for a small producer, especially if you're, it actually doesn't matter where in the world you are, but we're located in California. I would say the majority of our customers are in California, let's say over over half. I mean, we sell some wine out of the country and in London and in Denmark and in other places, but the majority of our wine and, and in New York and Georgia, but the majority of our wine is sold in California. And so when you partner, when we're partnering with somebody like Vince, you guys are, are you guys have a lot of um, contacts on the East Coast and you have a lot of different contacts than we have. You know, you're very you're driven in the, in the really in the fine wine market, which we hope that we're a part of that market, right? We want to be a part of that market. And so we figure it's just a really great chance, uh, not only to not only to help with cash flow on this vintage, but also to get new people exposed to, to our wines. Yeah, no, that was a great description there. And I think what's interesting for many people is they forget like the entrepreneurial system, like in Bordeaux, for example, started out of the necessity for cash flow after World War II. Like it was actually... You know, at that time, it's hard to believe now because they're making so much money, but it was actually part of that same issue and they're just trying to make ends meet. So this is just something that we're trying to do with Vint. One, to have a unique offering for our investors, but two, to be able to help producers like you guys selves making quality wine, be able to kind of focus more on on that side of the business. And rather than, you know, worrying about money, you know, each fall, we can kind of help smooth out that curve and allow you guys to do what you do best and make some great wines. So Speaking of the great wines, can you tell us a little bit about the Santa Barbara vintage from 2021? Yeah, 2021 was what I would almost call an idyllic vintage, uh, especially for us in the in the coastal areas. It came off 2020, which had a lot of issues with fires up in Northern California and smoke and heat. It, it was really, which was a super stressful year. 2021 was a, a cool year. We, we didn't have any heat spikes. Um, and so everything was just very slow and steady. It led up to a, a really late harvest, which in California is, is a nice, good thing because we don't have really much of a threat of rain at all in September, rarely into October. And the, the Joy Fantastic Syrah, we, we ended up picking kind of October 15th, 16th because there was an actual big rainstorm coming. 
that dropped about two inches and, and we were kind of at the end of the season. So it was really great in that the, the grapes were able to sit out for a really long, long season, develop a lot of flavor at really modest alcohols. Like the 2021 Joy Fantastic Shiraz is going to be just a touch over 13% alcohol. Yet it's got like all this super purple color, really great texture to it, spice. Yeah, from the winemaking side, really like a dreamy vintage that we didn't have to stress out about a lot. We could just kind of wait and wait and wait. So that was that was really great. We're really excited about all the 2021s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're really silky, delicate, and a little bit more on the savory side. Peter and I like, we don't want Syrah to be big, jammy, and fruity. That's just not, well, it's not, not what we can't do it and where we're growing wine, which is the far western edge of Santa Rita Hills. And I always say that we really like to grow Syrah where everybody else has Pinot Noir planted. And that's because we want like that, that true like peppery character, that more olivey, gamey character, um, which, which just really comes when you're either picking, if you're in a warmer climate, picking Syrah a little bit on the earlier side, or if you're just growing a cool climate where it doesn't, doesn't get very ripe. What yeah. brick was it picked at? Oh, it was probably about right about 22, 22? bricks, yeah. Yeah, which is fairly typical. Yeah. And we see much higher acidity at Joy Fantastic for Syrah than any other Syrah vineyard we work with because it is such a cool climate. And that's part of what we love about that wine is it's got beautiful structure and beautiful aging potential as well. Yeah, something that I didn't really realize as much until I was writing up the, the thesis for this is I, I knew there was a, a fair bit of Syrah grown in Santa Barbara, but it's the third most planted grape behind Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I thought that was really interesting, but I, I was recently up there and tasted some um, Valerie Canyon's like Syrah. And it was just interesting thinking about, you know, your expression, which is more on that peppery and lean and savory side. And there it's still a little bit of that because I get it up a little bit, but it's a much different style overall. Um, how would you guys, have, are there more like regional expressions throughout Santa Barbara? Or do you want to explain a little bit for maybe some of the people who don't know how the you know transverse valley works and why it's colder on your side and really warm on the other side? Yeah, so the Santa Barbara County, the growing region, is a is a, basically an east-west valley. Uh, it stretches 25 miles or so, and we're opened up directly to the ocean. So there's no mountains blocking us like in Napa or Sonoma. And it's quite cool in the ocean throughout the spring into the summer. I mean, right now the ocean is about 52 degrees offshore. So it really tempers the – I mean, we've had – no days in the 80s here out at Santa Rita Hills. And so as you head inland, it warms up about a degree per mile. So you've got vineyards in Santa Rita Hills where in the summertime it will be in the 70s. Then in the middle of the valley, it'll be in the 80s. And then as you head farther inland into Happy Canyon, Ballard Canyon, it'll be into the 90s. And so you've got this huge, huge uh, broad range of temperature and then also wine styles. You know, those wines from the warmer areas, they are going to be fruitier. They're going to be denser. They're going to have a touch more alcohol to them. Um, less acidity. A little bit less mm -hmm. acidity. Yeah, they're they're gonna they're gonna be more that kind of full bodied classic straw. And then as you head farther west, the the styles start to change and evolve, where you're getting more savory notes, more spice, and um, so it's really cool. And that, I think you know, and that's why it is Syrah is a really versatile grape, so it will do well in in all those climates. And we used to work more in the warmer part of Santa Barbara County, and we've slowly over the years just kind of trudged uh, west uh, because we found those wines to to be more to our liking and more to more expression of the site. That's awesome. I, I think also, Syrah, I mean, it's had a little bit of time in the U.S. getting more traction. I mean, it's always been a challenge. You know, it's always been the favorite of Psalms, but difficult for, you know, the mainstream to pick up for whatever reason. I think it's gaining some traction. And I think you guys just got back another score on the, the 2020, right, for um, your Syrah. So I think they're also getting respect from uh, the media. What was that most recent score you guys had for I think that was from from wine enthusiasts, and I think it was a ninety seven. Yeah, you know it was a we're all being. We're, I don't know why we're being cagey about this. Yeah, because we, we Peter and I are like we're very reluctant on the score game, and we're really grateful for it when it happens. But the truth is, like you never know in what order your wine's being tasted in. You never know the context your wine's being tasted in by a critic. And so it's not something we rely on, but we've been really lucky in that the 2018, we got 95 points on and the 2020, 97. And we haven't released the 2019 yet just because it's it's just not ready to go. And so it hasn't, it hasn't been reviewed, but, um, but we're hopeful for the, that the 2021 will be really, will be critically received. Again, to us, that's not the most important thing. It's the most important thing that it tastes the way and, you know, feels the way we want it to. But we're always, of course, you're always proud. It's like your kid getting an A++ or getting, being a valedictorian or something. Yeah, I really like the 2020 and I'm excited for that wine. But I personally, at this stage in the game, I like the 2021 a little more. That's, you know, just my 
<laughs> Winemakers okay, always okay. like what's what's what they yeah. what they don't have to sell. It's like once we bottle something, we're like, yeah, great, okay. Moving let's, on. Let's talk about what's still still to come. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I, was, I was thinking like the, the producers that I've worked at, um, even here, trying to sell Central Coast Syrah or like you know not the mainstream varietals though, and even get those reviewed, um, not sell them, but get them reviewed. Like when you're submitting them, that's even a kind of a, a challenge in and of itself. So the fact that you know they're now accepting more Syrah from the Central Coast and then really taking the time to look at everybody's, I think is really great. And then, then the scores obviously will come. So I think that's really interesting. Have you seen more of a rise in Syrah or any other Rhone bridles, you know, in the central coast, not the central coast, including Paso, but like more in your area, maybe around Ventura, San Luis Obispo. I know Sina Quanon obviously is an example of somebody who uses some, but. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there is a little bit of Pinot Noir fatigue on the Central Coast. You know, that that is... We, we worry about that with our vineyard, too, because we have mostly Pinot Noir planted out there. And yeah. we, we worry about, like, how much Santa Rita Hills is viable for sales. You know what I mean? From each, from every producer. I'm like, I love our Pinot Noir, but, you know, the Syrah is super distinctive. You know, it's because there's not much Syrah planted out where we are in Santa Rita. But I think in general, there is, you know, there is some fatigue. There was, you know, post-sideways, there was this huge... Pinot Noir boom the last 20 years and obviously it's a great place for Pinot Noir and there's tons of great Pinot produced but when you make Pinot Noir that's kind of average that's a tough that's a tough sell so I think people are looking at other varieties certainly yeah Syrah and Grenache have a lot of traction and popularity but then people are looking at other you know sort of obscure varieties you know different white varieties that might do well and really you know we're, we're a young area and they've only you know seriously been making wine here for about 50 years so that's a pretty short time to figure out what's going to do best and i i do think syrah has proven especially in the cooler climates to be something that is unique that you can't do everywhere in the world you know there's there's not a lot of places in california where you can make um really site-driven spicy savory syrah um there's a handful of places but but it, it's it's a really it has a great home here awesome well I mean, those are the main, you know, kind of bits I want to touch on. I don't want to keep you guys too long. We're really excited um, for tomorrow, and we'll probably have to grab you back if we, you know, are able to sell out these collections tomorrow. So we're excited. Everybody who's listening should check it out. Again, it's um, 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 p.m. Eastern time. And, yeah, if anybody has any questions, we'll hang around for a couple more minutes. But um, thank you guys for, for joining. Yeah, no, our pleasure. our pleasure. Yeah, tomorrow feels a little like Christmas morning. We're excited to see what... <laughs> Except we're, you're giving I, the presents. Where this goes, yeah. It'll be really, really fun. And, you know, one of the things I was kind of thinking about with the whole sort of cash flow thing and how that relates to to the wine business, you know, when we started our business for the first 15 years, we were almost entirely wholesale. And, and that, that was always a challenging sort of thing because you never knew how much wine a distributor would take. You never knew how quickly things were going to sell. And as we built up, you know, relationships like you – We've built up our wine club. We now have certain things we can count on, right? Like we know we're going to do two wine club shipments a year, and that's going to be X amount of wine, X amount of cases. And so now we can actually like plan for that, you know, like we can, we can buy grapes for a certain wine club wine where we'll make a hundred cases and just having that knowledge, knowing that, wow, like this year we can sort of count on these five or six things and these five or six markets um, does make our job easier uh, just to just to know where where the wine's going to go, and rather than just oh yeah, we'll make a bunch of wine and hope we can sell it. Yeah, I think a lot of people think oh winemakers just like we just all are driven creatively and live by the vine, and you know it's just like the wine is made in the vineyard. But the truth is like there is a there's a bit there's obviously a business behind it, and a lot of decisions we make are financial. Not you know it, we make them for quality, obviously, but you know. But you you can't we we can't ignore the financial aspect of it. it it's, we're we're running a commercial winery, right? We're running a business, and so it's it's really important. It's so funny, Peter and I. For for many years, I feel like we just put our heads in the sand and just refused to kind of look at QuickBooks and figure out where we were with everything because that can be really scary. And we just did we just kind of did that last week. And this was kind of all part of this vent thing where we were like, oh, we should like look at our finances and dive in there and kind of see where all the uh why where are the wines going i'm sorry somebody has a question but i can't seem to there it is. yeah I, see, I think that one's more for us oh okay great great yeah so just to answer that question so once you you buy say these joy fantastic shares then will after the wines are bottled go through the process of eventually selling the wines always with the goal of getting the best return for our investors 
So at this point, you know, we're, get, we're getting the wines from Joy Fantastic at a certain price that's below retail price. It's in our thesis. If you want to learn the exact ratio and then we'll aim to sell, you know, we'll work with their team to sell the wines at the end. And in theory, hopefully, you know, do our best to provide potential returns. Can't guarantee any returns at all, but we can say, yeah, that will be the point. And then in terms of selling your shares yourself, we right now have no way of liquidating your shares amongst each other. We are working on a secondary trading part platform eventually, but for the time being now, you will be locked in until Vint sells the wines. So that is that is the answer for that. Yeah, no, and that's really, to your point about the cash flow, I think that's when we are aiming to solve these issues, especially from my side, working for producers before, working at Vintage, it's, it's really interesting because I am obviously, you know, sympathetic to the cash flow issue but also i think when you're worrying less about that you're focusing more on the quality of the wine or time in the vineyard or or things that you could be doing more interesting or there are certain producers who want to convert to biodynamic or organic and they don't they're not able to right now because they can't afford it or or say they have a bad harvest and they're you know they need something there so it's more our goal to see what people can do with that time and money they get back rather than just your the money themselves so i think that's that's really interesting from your guys point of view well, it helps us sleep better at night, which helps us make better wine because uh, we're not stressing about, uh, you know, not having any money in the bank account. But, you know, we're we're trying to do new and exciting things each and every year. And, you know, we're actually re- having to replant some little sections of the vineyard here. Now that it's seven or eight years old, there's been a few little spots that need some love and attention. And, you know, those are all those are all you replant a vine. It's going to be three years before you see anything off it. So. We were just looking at the cost of vines has risen in the last, uh, when we planted it in 2014. It's just interesting to see how, when we planted the vineyard, we, we just made, we made like, Oh, these are going to be our fixed costs. Right. And now it was about $12,000 an acre when we planted our vineyard. And now we are how many years into this now? We planted eight 14, years. eight years. And our costs are maybe around $18,000 an acre. And so they've grown 50%. And that's just the increase in the cost of labor. I mean, these are things that you price your wines according to $12,000 an acre, and then you end up at 18. And it's hard to, you can't just raise your prices by 50%. I mean, that's not, it's not, it's not fair to the consumer and it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense, but these are all, these are all things that are always going through our mind with, with money and farming costs and quality. It all goes, you know, it all goes hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. Well, there's anything else you guys want to, want to add before tomorrow or. No, we're looking forward to the release and we've been checking in on the other releases you guys have. And, I know. Uh, you know, step, <laughs> stepping in here and there on some of the collections. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're always buying something. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Amy, we might have to get you on to talk about the, the white burgundy and the, the one red in there at some point in time. I know your specialty is burgundy. So yeah, I love we it. might have more to talk about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. And um, we'll talk again tomorrow, maybe, but looking All forward right. to okay. it. Sounds Thanks. Thanks. All right. Bye. 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 For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vent and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.